On today's programme, cold comfort, shock and dismay as around 90 people are still sleeping in tented accommodation in freezing temperatures. Rural housing, should people have a right to live where they're from? And dangerous dogs, who's responsible for policing the country's canines? Good afternoon and welcome to Saturday with Colm O'Mongoyne. Please do get in touch. If you want to be part of the debate today, you can text us on 51551, email saturday at rte.ie or tweet to at saturdayrte. Well, with a third night of sub-zero temperatures, around 90 people remain in tented accommodation in Knocklachine County Clare today as met air and forecasts more freezing temperatures for the weekend. The tented camp is the only one still accommodating international protection applicants after the last 18 people living in a tented facility in Athlone were moved out yesterday. Eugene Quinn, director of the Jesuit Refugee Service, has been visiting residents there in Knocklachine this morning. He joins us on the line now. Eugene, thanks for joining us. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on this morning. So from your assessment this morning, first of all, I suppose if you could give listeners a sense of what the facilities in Knocklachine are like in this tented accommodation. Yeah, so look, there's a main series of accommodation blocks. So there's a capacity for 250 people in the main direct provision centre there. And then to the left of that, there's 13 tents, each with a capacity for eight people. So those are army tents, there's eight beds in, in each of the tents, but there's only room just for a bed and then the space beside. They're all divans, so there's no room to put your stuff. So all the, the men have their uh, clothes and materials in bags beside it. Um, there's no recreation space. It's connected by a series. It's kind of, they're in an L shape, the 13 tents. They're connected by a series of walkways. There's external toilets and shower facilities that are close to some of the tents and a bit further to be walked along the walkways. So that's kind of the basic geography of it. Right. And you've been visiting there this morning and in touch with people there. So what was the morale like there this morning? How did they get through the night? Look, I suppose some of the men, they were they were tired. Um, so the men arrived there three months ago. Um, uh, tents were considered to be kind of a, a last resort and only for a short term, but they found themselves there for three months. Um, I suppose in the cold, since the start, they've complained about the, the cold and the heating has been an ongoing issue intermittent. I suppose most of the men that I spoke to said they barely slept last night. Most of them had wrapped themselves in the clothes they had. About 20 had gone into the main kind of reception area and slept inside the centre in some of the recreation rooms and the, the remaining men had slept in, in the centre. One man I met, like who I'd met regularly because we won an outreach clinic there, um, I could see the bags under his eyes and the tiredness. He was kind of wan-looking and, and just cold and tired and... I suppose there's a lot of fear and uncertainty as well because they don't know when they're going to leave and where they're going to go to. So obviously some people have a strong connection to what they're doing. They're in language classes. So they want to get out of the accommodation, which is cold and freezing. So you can imagine what that's like at this right. time. But they're also quite nervous as to where they go because they don't know when that will happen and they don't know where that will be in the system. Right. So some of some of how they look is down to the stress as well as the cold and, and the tiredness. Yes, yes. So, I, I mean, I suppose it would be a factor of the protection system. For They live with a lot of uncertainty anyway with, as, as international protection applicants, but also part of it is the, it's the cold, the living, the, the conditions there, but also where are they going to go next and when will that happen? So they don't actually know that uncertainty. So that they, that's, that's stressful for people, particularly where they've been involved. So there's a, a number of people involved in English language courses that they would be keen. A number of people said they would like to stay in Limerick, 
but obviously they don't want to stay in a tent in these sub-zero temperatures. They'd love to be able to stay, obviously, in the main accommodation, but that doesn't seem to be an option that's available for them at the moment. Right. And some of them were due to be... So can you clear up maybe some of the confusion around this based on what you saw today? The department is saying 20 people have been moved. They were certainly due to be moved, but what were the numbers like there this morning? So what I understood is that there was two groups of five that were due to move yesterday to to Dublin, one to Dublin, five to Dublin and five to Waterford. Um, the group to Dublin was cancelled and then at late notice the bus driver rang in because of the freezing conditions last night and the five that were due to go to Waterford weren't able to travel. Uh, when I spoke this morning that was supposed to happen. I haven't received confirmation whether that was supposed to happen early this afternoon. Right. And in terms of where they would be moving in Dublin, the uh, Irish Independent, Sarah Slater and the Irish Independent reporting today that there are some concerns about even where the accommodation where they would be moved to in London, specifically uh, the East Wall, the adequacy of the the, the accommodation there. I mean, what's your knowledge of, of where people would be moved to if they were to be moved out of tents? So I suppose a lot of the time at the moment, as you understand, there's, there's huge pressures on the accommodation system. So we've received record number of people of international protection applicants this year, in addition to obviously 60,000 people who've, who've arrived from Ukraine. So that's put huge pressure at a time that we have a national housing crisis anyway. But a, a lot of the more recent um, accommodation that's been provided to asylum seekers has been in basically repurposed commercial buildings. And so um, that's kind of, I suppose, far short of what the standards would have been in the past in terms of accommodation, but it is what's, what's been able, they've been able to acquire. But that causes a lot of concern for people because often that is effectively a commercial floor of a building which has partitions that separate people from, from each other. There's often, they have lights on consistently in the buildings because that's the way that they're configured. So they're not, they weren't built for residential, but they're being used um, to avoid people being on the streets and, and, and having some form of accommodation. But they're still far short of what the minimum standards we would have expected for the past to allow people, I suppose, live with dignity within the system. And uh, But that is what has been made available. All right. And finally, just before we let, we let you go, I mean, in your view, is there a better alternative and could there have been better planning to put people into a better alternative? Well, I suppose, look, I, as I said, there's absolutely huge pressures and, and, and it's easy to say when from this distance that we should be able to acquire accommodation. I suppose for the, the situation with the same tents, I suppose that's entirely predictable. So I suppose we would have looked for a, maybe a longer term strategic approach to put in contingencies for these pinch points. So I suppose when people were put into the tents in Nocturne three months ago, uh, it was inevitable that winter was going to arrive and we were going to reach to this point. So I think there should have been a contingency plan to ensure that no person would have been staying in sub-zero temperatures. It's the coldest weather for four years that we shouldn't have people in tents frozen at this time of the year. And that, that could have been anticipated. And, and even if we couldn't have got a longer term accommodation, there should have been a contingency plan to move them out and avoid that situation with the damage to their health and well-being. All right. Eugene Quinn from the Jesuit Refugee Service. Many thanks for joining us. Well, Sinead Gibney, Ireland's Chief Commissioner for Human Rights, has been listening to Eugene Quinn there on the line and she joins us now. Sinead, thanks for joining us uh, today. Thank you, Carla, for having me on. What's your reaction to what you've been hearing there from Eugene Quinn? Um, well, I think it's um, it's really not acceptable, I, I, I suppose, to, to hear about the conditions in which uh, these men are living at the moment, um, and particularly that they've been there for so long. 
Um, I mean, we're going to be taking a look at this, I suppose, and really examining it under the questions that we do, which is, you know, is this a breach of human rights? And we have to look at it in that context around the thresholds under international and European law for, you know, what constitutes that breach of human rights. I mean, of course, I want to acknowledge, you know, the very unprecedented circumstances that the state is dealing with at the moment. Um, And obviously, that's the reason why we are seeing these temporary measures extending well beyond uh, where they should be. Um, but really, I think what is happening right now in Nakashin does deserve further examination. Um, but really, I suppose, I mean, I only have what we've heard in the media and obviously what we've just heard from Eugene there. Um, but I anticipate that, that as a commission, we will be uh, contacting the department um, to really establish what these exact circumstances are. And I suppose I would, I, I mean, I guess you'll appreciate that I, I don't want to really prejudge what the outcome of that engagement will be. But I hope that helps in terms of just giving you a sense of how we will be looking at it very much under those thresholds right. um, that we, we need to be meeting. You said in the past that, <coughs> excuse me, the country needed to resist a two-tier system with regard to people uh, seeking international protection. Do you think it's too late for resistance at this stage? Do you think a two-tier system is in existence? Uh, I think there is a two-tier system in place, absolutely, but I don't think that means it's too late to resist it. I think we have to continue to, to combat it. Um, And I think part of that really is about the state taking on uh, a responsibility to combat racism um, and to really be much more proactive in dealing with the situation that that we are handling at the moment. I mean, the the NGO sector have been very clear in calling from the outset for greater communication, more centralised leadership within government. Um, We also have a national action plan against racism, uh, which has been promised um, and is due from the department, and we're anticipating that. And I think that will help deliver a lot of the... um, the really proactive actions that we need to see come from the state in combating racism. Uh, so I don't think it's too late. No, absolutely. I think the stuff that the there are actions that the, the state needs to undertake and, and I think it needs to happen urgently. Right. I mean, uh, you'd be reasonably we, confident, though, that the public attitude towards things like uh, direct provision and the welcoming of refugees and asylum seekers is behind you on this one because you've released polling today that indicates a sympathetic or positive attitude towards people arriving in the country. Absolutely. And so this is an annual survey that we do every year. Today is International Human Rights Day, so we've released some of the results from that. Um, And support for migrants and people who are seeking international protection does remain strong here in Ireland, with nearly nine out of ten people agreeing that no matter who you are or where you're from, you should be treated equally. Um, Along with that, we have uh, published a, a similar statistic saying that nearly three quarters of people agree that Ireland benefits as a whole from being a more inclusive and diverse society. And more than half say that Irish people welcome diversity and interculturalism in society. And that is a a kind of fairly steady trend that we have within our results. And if you look at um, the international or the um, Irish Network Against Racism and the statistics that they publish as well, uh, we have statistics from them that, that go up to 2021. But, you know, it, the, although we are, there's a lot of talk about racism at the moment and, um, you know, really we, we're not seeing that rise in racism. We aren't seeing a rise in racism and we want to make sure that we, we hold that. There are incidences, of course, of racism and uh, some of the less positive results that we've uncovered is right. that, uh, for example, over the past 12 months, 38% of people have personally witnessed racism in Ireland and more than one in 10. Did, did you drill into that or when, when they say that, are they talking about attacks? Are they talking about awareness in the media? What's, what's the nature of that? Well, I think that, the, that, that is how the question is put. Have you witnessed racism? So no, we haven't drilled further, in, further into that. I know the INAR results, the um, Irish Network Against Racism do have quite 
um, granular level detail of you know the exact experiences of, of racism, um, you know, and, and hate speech and so on. So they go into it in a bit more detail. Um, but what we're seeing is people generally do have you know do witness racism, and I think that's important to acknowledge that even though we do have good attitudinal responses, and I think the reason why it's so important to get this message out today um, is because I suppose there are ways in which. Um, some people within our society are seeking to divide us further and I think they're using uh, the current situation um, and people arriving here from Ukraine and arriving into our broader international protection system to, to seed division and to sow hatred. And I think it's really important to remember that we are a tolerant people and, and, a, and a welcoming people and these statistics show that we, we really welcome and celebrate diversity and inclusion. And I think that's where we need our ambition right. to remain as a society. Can I ask you about another statistic? You said that in the, your survey, it said 55% of people said diversity and interculturalism is welcome in society, meaning that 45% mm. of people think it's not. Is that that they think it's not welcome as a notion in and of itself, or they think that other people don't welcome it, if you, if you get the distinction? Yeah, I do get the distinction, um, and I think I think it's the latter. I think what we're seeing is that um, people are, are calling out, I suppose, where, where perhaps we're falling, falling short as a society. And again, I think that goes back to the point that we need to have an international protection system, for example, uh, which moves out of crisis mode. Because at the moment, we have direct provision. It's been in existence for nearly 25 years now, and it was a response to a crisis, and we have remained in that crisis mode ever since. So I don't believe... But at the moment, really, the system itself uh, demonstrates the values demonstrates the values that we have as a society, and that I think we should be striving for in welcoming people who are fleeing persecution, fleeing war, who've lost the protection of their own country, and who have come to our shores to seek that protection. And right. I think we need to do better. <clears throat> uh, what do you What do you think of the, some of the meetings that have attracted, I suppose, a variety of people um, to? direct provision centres or uh, centres housing people seeking international protection, so-called community meetings in some cases? Um, so I think, well, I think it's, it's important to kind of break things down a little here. Um, as I said, I think there are those who are seeking to um, sow division and, and sow hatred. Um, but I think it, it's also important to acknowledge that certain communities and, and many communities across Ireland are suffering from resource shortages, but they are two separate things. And I think it's really important. And so, of course, I think in those situations where communities are under pressure with resources, be it GPs or schools or whatever it might be, of course, then that, that prompts people to ask the question of, well, what's going to happen if we do have groups of people coming into our community? How is that going to affect those resource shortages? So I think it's really important to acknowledge that. But I think perhaps the way I would compare it, perhaps that might be helpful, is to say, well, we don't blame patients for a hospital's lack of services, for example. Um, so I think it's important to say that, that because there is a lack of services or a shortage of resources within a community, it's not fair and it's not appropriate to then blame people who might be arriving into that community. I think we do need to keep separate uh, those two topics. And I think um, it's, it's, again, back on the stage, really, to kind of drive up communication, help fill that vacuum so that it doesn't get um, populated with any really insidious narratives and, and racist narratives that might be coming out at the moment. All right. Although you, I think in an Irish Times op-ed, you said yourself that we need to talk about race as a society. Is, is your concern that maybe going back to that idea of, a, <coughs> excuse me, a two-tier system, that you feel the treatment of some people who are from further away than Ukraine and who look different to white Irish people are receiving different treatment? 
Absolutely. There's, there's no question. I mean, I think as everybody knows at this stage, there are two different legal bases on which people arrive into the state. Those arriving from Ukraine are under the temporary, directive, uh, temporary protection directive, which means that they have a suite of rights that um, people arriving in the international protection system don't have. Uh, but further than that, I do think, yes, absolutely, as a society, there is also a different response because people look like us. They have the same religion as us, perhaps, as well. Um, and I think that that is something we need to talk about. We need to call out racism as a society. Um, and I think that's uh, that's something that we take very seriously. Our mandate is uh, is to promote intercultural understanding in this state. Um, but I do think beyond that, that the state ha- also has a role to play um, in helping to promote anti-racism. And what I mean by that is I think when people think about racism, they think about, well, if racism happens, we react to it, we, we combat it, and we, de- we defend against it. But I think we can be better at being promoting anti-racism, if you see what I mean. And I think if we are... I mean, the reality is that our globe well, it, is unstable. It sounds like what you're saying is, to, to a certain degree, is that better planning includes looking around at, as you mentioned earlier, the resources a community has to take people and maybe matching up new arrivals with where the capacity is to take them better. Is is, is, is that part of, of the argument? That's definitely part of it. I mean, I think the resource piece is definitely part of it, but I also think that being promoting anti-racism as a state is much deeper than that. I mean, first and foremost, I think we need to be much better as a state in collecting data. So we don't have disaggregated data at the moment that tells us a detailed enough picture of when racial discrimination is really at play. But we know that it is because of the communities that we deal with, that there are experiences of racism when it comes to housing, for example, education and health. So as a state, we need to do those kinds of things, collect data and really understand where racism and racial discrimination is happening. But then I think we also need to think about it at a societal level and a community level. So really tackle conditions which lead to that rise of racism, make connections between communities and really break down the barriers so that we can better understand each other, challenge disinformation so that, again, those, um, those, the, the, those vacuums don't happen and really empower marginalised communities to tell their right. own stories. Uh, finally, just there's a story in today's Daily Mail by uh, Liam Cosgrove reporting on a situation in Longford where an area or a, a piece of land that had been earmarked for uh, an amenity, including a skate park, uh, residents are now being told that it's going to be used for modular accommodation uh, to house Ukrainian refugees. And there's some public upset by that, including by a local uh, senator said he was adamant that the site would remain uh, a recreational one. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about where if it appears that the accommodation of refugees and the needs of a community for other facilities become a zero-sum game, that tensions, unnecessary tensions, will be provoked. Yeah, I, th- I think that's part of it. I, I absolutely do, and I don't necessarily want to comment on Longford because I know as much as you do just in terms of what's been out in the media. But, I mean, many, many communities across Ireland have opened up their doors, and we really it's a huge credit to all of those communities who've done that. But it's exactly that. It's not us versus them choice and it shouldn't be positioned as an us versus them choice. This is about solidarity. It's about building a national response for, system for responding to crises. And that's whether it be homelessness, whether it be international protection applicants, the reality is that these things are coming at us as a state, as a society. And as long as we remain in this crisis mode where we're just firefighting, we're never going to be in a situation okay. where we can handle it. 
Okay, Sinead Gibney, Ireland's Chief Commissioner for Human Rights and Equality. Thanks for joining us. Well, let me introduce you to my political panel here in studio with me this week. They're Peter Burke, Finnegale TD for Longford Westmeath and Minister of State for Local Government and Planning. Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Fingal and Party Spokesperson on Workers' Rights, Enterprise, Trade and Employment. And Kean O'Callaghan, Social Democrats TD for Dublin Bay North and Party Spokesperson on Housing. Peter Burke, we heard there from Eugene Quinn and indeed Sinead Gibney. Just on a human level, is it acceptable for those people to be spending so long, three months at this stage intense, but in the recent freezing weather, a far worse experience? No, it's not acceptable. And I think anyone who is human on a humanitarian rights issue would absolutely concur with that, that it's not acceptable. But I think equally, both Eugene and Sinead really highlighted the challenge that the state is facing uh, in responding to this massive crisis. And if we actually put this into context, if we look over the last year, uh, the number of those coming into our country seeking international protection has gone up by 300%. So if we put that into figures, there's around 14,500 people who have come in over the last year, as well as 67,000 Ukrainian citizens who are very vulnerable through the war in Ukraine that we also have provided protection for. So that's around 85,000 citizens extra in our country that the government is trying to provide the necessary infrastructure for and the critical thing here uh, is that it's very difficult to predict the levels. So in relation to international uh, international protection, could over I the just, next week before for Before you get into that, could, could I just put it to you, at the beginning when Russia first invaded Ukraine and people began to leave the country, the government's estimate was that 200,000 people from Ukraine could land in Ireland. Would it have been better to plan in terms of the worst case scenario? And, and, and because the figures we're dealing with now are less than half of that. Well, I think it has planned for the worst case scenario, but temporary protection, it's a different mechanism in terms of what the international protection requirements are under the EU directive. So if we focus on international protection first uh, in relation to it, the problem with... uh, with international protection it's very difficult to predict the level of people who are going to come in week on week through uh, Dublin looking for accommodation and coming from very difficult backgrounds and are very vulnerable and the state is doing its best we had 100 people in tents and at loan who now have got into uh, better accommodation and obviously and What was it know, like there? It was very difficult. Any, Did you see it? Did you go to the yeah, centre? I saw that there were in tents there, very vulnerable people in tents. And like you have in Clare, which is very difficult, I'm fully aware uh, of the difficulties that people are in. But we have to be fair in terms of put this in context okay. and what the government is All dealing right. with. That's the size of the whole city of Waterford. Okay. And I we're do, still do, facing just, an acute crisis at the moment with uh, that scale on top I just, of it. I just want to go to the rest of the panel. Uh, Louise O'Reilly, what's your reaction to that? Well, you know, back in March, the government did say they were preparing for 200,000 people to come here. So, I mean, if they were, they have failed absolutely abysmally. I think the what happened in Nocklesheen, particularly last night, and, you know, we're all very conscious of how freezing cold it was last night and how awful it must have been for the people uh, left abandoned sleeping there in tents in sub-zero temperatures. But they've been in those tents for three months, so it would be different if uh, perhaps they had just arrived maybe a couple of days ago. They've spent three months, you know, as Eugene rightly pointed out, you know, they had three months to put contingency in place. There's nothing more certain than temperatures are going to drop in December. So they knew it was going to get colder. 
but there was no contingency arrangement and the end result of which is 90 people slept in sub-zero temperatures last night and uh, my understanding is the vast majority of those will sleep in sub-zero temperatures tonight as well. That's really just not good enough. I mean, it was freezing last night, Colm, absolutely freezing. And, you know, the government need really to put more detailed plans in place. They need to improve their communication with communities, absolutely. But they also need to start planning. I mean, the cold weather is entirely predictable. Keen O'Callaghan. Yeah, I, I mean, it's completely unacceptable that anyone would be left sleeping in in freezing conditions and the government have had some time to plan this. So, look, no doubt that this has been a challenge, but it's the failure to plan ahead, the failure to build uh, capacity, the failure to have any kind of headroom. And look, we're seeing this across a whole range of areas that it's it's kind of last minute delivery, hoping for the best, you know, there was a bit of time. There was a bit of time for the government in terms of uh, the people who were sleeping last night in tents. In terms of you know that was three months ago, so that time wasn't wasn't used effectively. Uh, and I do think you know we have an obligation to really uh, do much better uh, on this uh, and not to fail people uh, in this in this way and put them through those sorts of conditions. Peter Burke, there was a proposal about modular homes uh, to to accommodate people, and we'll get to the issue in your own constituency in a moment. But what's the state of play with them? Where are they being made? Have they been tendered for? And what's the proposed delivery date? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that it's not credible to say that the government had three months. That's making an assumption that Dublin Airport was closed for the last three months. There has been hundreds and thousands of people who have come in over the last three months. So we have to be fair when we're making a determination to say that, you know, as if you have three months, nobody else has come into the country looking for accommodation. Yeah, but as Sinead no, Gibney just focus said, on this sorry, Peter, as Sinead Gibney said, people, blaming the people who come here. Is, is like blaming the patients blaming for the anyone. health crisis. No, please let's don't be fair. That. And please don't interrupt me, Louise, to be fair. I'm not interrupting you. So I think we have to have a fair debate here. What I'm saying is I'm putting context in terms of the challenge that the government is responding to. It's a huge challenge. And I was very clear in the outset saying it's an unacceptable position. And we as a country have responded sure, but on, on the budget, let's, let's get back, yeah, I so suppose, to the idea. On, based on the notion that there was potentially going to be 200,000 people here, Catherine Day has recommended recently as you say, that the six sites should, should accommodate those. But what's the, what's the situation with the tendering, the delivery and the date of delivery? For those so there have been tenders. So there are six sites that have been established. Uh, contractors are on the ground in three of the counties and they're aiming to have 700 units in place by the 1st of June next year. They're hoping to deliver, deliver the first aspect of them by March, but hopefully that we will be able to accommodate 2,000 additional by uh, the end of June or the start of June, the first half of the year. Okay, well, before just before I go back to the rest of the panel, let's deal with the issue of, of modular homes. In your constituency uh, in Longford, a seven-acre site purchased by Longford County Council, supposed to be a skate park and a mini harbour and, and many other uh, community amenities, is now, people are being told, going to accommodate modular housing. A uh, party colleague of yours, Senator Michael Carragy, says he was adamant it would stay a, a recreational site. So I suppose, first of all, a bit of clarity. Is it going to be modular or is it going to be recreational? So in the first instance, the site surveys are currently underway in both it and a number of other sites in County Longford. So the results of the survey have to come back to the Department, to the Office of Public Works, before they can make a determination on, firstly, whether the site is suitable. If the site is suitable, what will happen then is that the OPW will engage with the local authority members and the communities on the ground to try and get a resolution to it. But I think we have to be very clear, you know, 
our back is to the wall here in terms of trying to get sites uh, for very vulnerable people and we really have to redouble our efforts to ensure that we get as many modular units on the ground as quickly as possible to avoid the situation where your two previous speakers, Eugene and Sinead, have been articulating so well down in County Clare. We don't want to see that. No one wants to see uh, situations where vulnerable people are intense on very difficult right. time like this. But, but in a situation like this, like there's a, a potential tension being set up between a community where some people want uh, a soccer club facility, other people want other community facilities, they're hearing on it relatively late in in the day. Could it be done better? There are absolutely no easy choices here. Anyone that advances a notion or a premise that any community, there's perfect sites for modular homes, uh, for international protection or Ukrainian citizens, whichever, and that you can go in and there won't be any issues whatsoever, is false. What you have to do is try and get good sites first, but secondly, engage with communities then, but Unfortunately, okay, well, Colin, the problem is communities can't have a veto in terms we need, of different we, sites. We need to get a good other people in. Kiro, Colin, what's, what, what's your thinking on this in terms of alternatives and, and the planning of potential sites for modular housing and the like? Yeah, I mean, sometimes there does have to be hard uh, choices uh, made in this. But if, you know, if a community, for example, is going to lose a site that was earmarked for recreational use or other facilities, which that community is going to need and is going to want, then it has to know what's the alternative. If that site is going to be used for uh, modular housing, then where, when are they going to get the facilities that they need? Uh, There is an emergency situation here. So it isn't a situation that everything will be done you know, as you know, per- perfectly, and it isn't a situation. I mean, I mean, a lot of housing is going to have to go into established communities with established infrastructure and services and facilities because you can't simply dump people out in the middle of nowhere without any of that supporting uh, infrastructure. That doesn't work for a variety of reasons. But but it's absolutely critical, you know, because setting these things up as a potential conflict between a community that, understandably, has been promised uh, facilities and will want those. Mm-hmm against housing provision it you know does potentially lead to conflict so there has if if that is being done has to be very very clear as to what the alternative is for the community in oh, terms of the facilities it's very right. confusing for people Colm I mean on the one hand we have the, the Fine Gael TD in studio here saying uh, he'll make all the hard choices and, and that you know the site has been surveyed on the other hand you have the Fine Gael Senator uh, giving interviews to the media saying that it's absolutely not going to happen so I mean it would be helpful if we knew what the Fine Gael position was in the first instance but I think you know when people have been denied amenities and they, they've been promised these amenities. I think that the thing to do is to ensure that where the, the the homes are developed, that the amenities are developed in parallel. I think that would make sense. But I also uh, am confused and I don't understand why nobody is looking at the closed barracks, uh, which is in Longford um, and would be available to be uh, to, to be revamped and uh, to be used for emergency accommodation. And that's in the centre of the town. I think we need to be careful as well, you know, that we're not marginalising people and putting them to the outskirts of, of town and into the middle of nowhere. Okay. They, the, the barracks is in the centre of town. Longford is an incredibly diverse uh, county, actually, you know, and very welcoming. But there's no disputing they're behind in terms of amenities. They were promised amenities. So if, you know, there's going to be building, it the amenities okay. need to happen well, in parallel. But I also uh, need to, I, I fail to understand why the barracks is not being developed. Well, I think, and that's a Just, more just to say on that, the barracks is being surveyed 
at the moment is right. one of a number of sites uh, in County Longford that's been looked at uh, for the suitability for modular homes. But is, that, is, that a, sorry, is, is, is that a wider here. policy? Because Longford wouldn't be the only town in Absolutely. Ireland where there's, that there's a disused barracks in yeah, place. There are a the number moment. of barracks has been looked at right across the state for the suitability for modular homes. As I said, we have six sites that have been advanced. There are a number of others that are on a second category list, which we are going through site suitability surveys to try and establish how many of them can be uh, really rolled out quickly because speed is obviously the key thing in terms of getting these uh, modular units on the ground. But okay. do you accept, Peter, though, that it's confusing that Fine Gael don't seem to have a settled position on this and that really, to be fair to the people in Longford, you should be you should be honest and upfront and oh, say I'm what honest. is the party position. I'm saying what's very... I'm, I'm, I'm clear, if you okay, let me... So the, the party position, position is, is the opposite okay, of what well, your well, colleague let let finish. The party position is that there are a number of sites that are being surveyed the Longford Greyhound Stadium happens to be one of them but it has okay. to be assessed and the community's views will be taken on board as part of that process and it's okay. important that it is a huge site that can be used right. for recreation and I'm sure uh, it's going to have a bright future as well. Y- your party colleague seems to seems to believe anyway that it, it's not the best but we're going to stick with housing um, shortly.